You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. This morning, uh, we're going to read from verse 28 uh, through verse 44, Luke 19, verse 28 through verse 44, a large reading in comparison to what we've been doing in Romans. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. And when he had drawn, drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his, two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning that you would teach us and guide us, lead us, that, Father, you would encourage us, that you, your grace, Father, would uh, make us more and more like Christ. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, as you've already gathered, we too were taking a break this morning in our study in Romans, uh, uh, this being what the church has historically called uh, Palm Sunday. And, uh, you know, every year, at least I find myself here in recent years, as we come to the holidays, Easter and Christmas, I start a few months ahead, usually start thinking, okay, what am I going to preach this year? And um, I guess uh, as the years go by, you've preached all these texts before. I've preached on this text numerous times. And and I thought, well, I can't just keep preaching on the same text. We need another text and then I asked myself well what did you preach on last year Rick and uh, I, I don't know um, I don't know 
And uh, I have a sneaking suspicion if I don't know, (laughs) probably many of us don't know either. Uh, Not to discount the fact that sometimes you'll hear a sermon and uh, many of us have heard sermons where uh, for whatever reason we are wrestling with something very significant and uh, it was that morning that God really spoke to us. And sometimes you can remember a sermon for years. Uh, I think it was at grandma's funeral a woman come up to me and had uh, made mention. She, it was about five years earlier. She said, you know, you preached on Christmas Eve at our church. I was doing pulpit supply work at that time. And, and your text was, and she named the text. And she named all the points that I made. In fact, she remembered the sermon better than I did. As soon as she started to bring it up, well, then it, it, I remember doing it. I remember writing the sermon. I remember preaching that sermon. So thank goodness for that. If, if you had one of those moments last year on, on, on uh, Psalm Sunday, then you might be able to, to remind me what I preached on last year. I purposely did not look it up because I wanted to come to the text afresh this morning. I thought to myself, if I can't remember what we did, maybe I should quit worrying about it and just come to the text afresh each each year. And if we preach on the same text each year, so be it. Our God is infinite and he has something for us every day, doesn't he? And that's what I decided to do. And uh, um, I kind of debated, I was going to just give you the three points that I wanted to talk about this morning. I, I think we'll do it inductively instead. Why don't I just keep them to myself and... I'll bring them up as we go along. Uh, I, I, when we come to verse 28, and in fact, let me just say this as we start. Uh, you'll notice, some of you will notice about my own preaching and my own style, for better or for worse. A lot of times early on in my messages, I'll bring up one item, then I'll bring up another item, then I'll bring up another item, and then I'll bring up another item, and then about that time I can see your faces where you're just kind of like what in the world are you doing I'll say okay this looks like a big mess that we have scattered at Christmas time on the on the living room floor and it says assembly required you know let's start putting this thing together well that's in many ways what Luke is doing here Uh, throughout Luke's gospel he's been he's been developing this and developing this and developing this and developing this and uh, as we as we start really in verse 28 uh, he begins at this point to start putting things together. It's almost like we've taken the contest and we've dumped them on the living room floor. You know the routine. You know, you have to put this toy together, whatever it is, uh, appliance or whatever it is that you've bought. Uh, Luke is beginning to put things together. Now, to, uh, to see this, um, let me start by saying, if we look at verse 28, Luke 19, 28, Uh, where Jesus says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, this verse is very significant in this way. If you turn with me, and we're just going to look around a little bit in Luke's gospel a couple of times this morning. If you turn with me back to chapter 1 and verse 1. Verses 1 through 4, we have what we call a prologue. It's um, somewhat of an introduction And uh, in it, Luke tells us why he's writing. Um, He he says in verse 3 that it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. An orderly account of what? An An orderly account of the things that Christ has accomplished. So here we have a prologue. And 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then in verse 5, we have what we might call an infant uh, narrative or a birth narrative, or uh, maybe we could call this a childhood narrative. It, it runs, it starts in chapter 1, verse 5, and runs all the way through basically chapter 2. And, and then in chapter 3, uh, we have what we might call preparation for the ministry, where Jesus is being uh, you know, prepared for the ministry. Now, of course, all his life, in terms of his human nature, has been prepared for this. But here we see this uh, preparation uh, for ministry. And if you look at chapter 4 and verse 14, there Luke begins to, uh, Jesus begins his ministry, and you'll see that Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit uh, to Galilee. And a lot of folks who are outlining the, the, the book of um, the Gospel of Luke will, will begin here and say, okay, this begins his ministry in Galilee. His ministry in Galilee. Now, if you turn to chapter 9 and verse 50, chapter 9 and verse 50, Now, verse 50 here uh, completes in many ways, in many respects, kind of ends the ministry in Galilee. And if you look at verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he what? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we could look at chapter 9, verse 51 as the beginning of another stage of Christ's ministry, a stage where he begins to journey towards Jerusalem. And that takes us to Luke 19 and verse 28. See the connectivity? And when he had said, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, as we read, we're told that when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, now these locations are just a couple miles east of Jerusalem, if you will. He's in his suburbs. We would call it today the suburbs, if you will, of Jerusalem. He's very close to Jerusalem. And this, to, to many of us, I mean, if you're familiar with this passage, uh, yes, but if you're not familiar, if you're reading this passage for a long time, if, you, if you're reading it for the first time, I should say, it seems a bit strange because there's all this rhetoric about a donkey, and you, you might have to wonder, what has this donkey got to do with everything? Has anybody ever done that? I don't know. Maybe you've grown up hearing this story over and over again, but have you ever stopped to think, I mean, if you look, I mean, when the gospel writers write, they do with a certain economy. They don't ramble on like, like preachers do sometimes. They write very succinctly and very concisely. But yet, look at look at how much look at look at everything that's going on about this cult. Verse twenty nine: When when Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Verse thirty, saying, "Go into the village in front of you." And when you get there, you will find a what? You'll find a colt tied 
on which no one has ever sat. And that little phrase on which no one has ever said is really preparing us, I think, to see this as there's a sacred purpose for this cult. You might think back in the Old Testament economy of things, which they're in many respects still in at this point in the game, where when animals were used for certain things, they, they, for instance, heifers were the heifers that were to be used were to, uh, they were to have never had a yoke on their shoulders. Um, so you, you'll find this, this rhetoric. Um, so we see we, our minds already thinking, okay, whatever the purpose is for this cult, it's sacred. Uh, it's a cult in which no one has ever yet sat. Uh, Jesus' instruction is once you get into town and you find this cult, uh, untie it and bring it here. Now, this, and I've said this before in previous messages on this deck, I think this in many ways would be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, imagine going into somebody's yard and um, just helping yourself to their stuff. Um, I would have to think, unless you're a thief who's accustomed to doing this kind of thing, um, this would be a bit uncomfortable. Um, but uh, they go and they do it. Um, uh, Jesus says to them, he says, listen, if anyone asks you why you're untying it, Uh, You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, there's another clue. How does Jesus refer to himself in that passage? He says the Lord has need of it. Man, that's strong. And we're going to see that's that's really strong. Verse 32, so those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, sure enough, its owners said, what are you doing? What, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, what's going on here? Well, to get the real gist of this, we also need to look around uh, at the context. Keep your place there. And turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. This is a, a, a really favorite, I mean, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, the cleansing of a leper. One of the reasons why it's such a favorite of mine is when I was doing ministry at Columbiana County Jail, uh, there, there was a, a woman that come to faith as I preached on this message and uh, or on this particular passage, and it's been very, it's been very special to me ever since that day. And I, and for the, the sake of the recording, I wasn't in jail. I was ministering at Columbiana County Jail. Uh, some of you are laughing because you know the story. A couple, a number of occasions, as I've shared some of the the um, Columbiana County Jail stories. After the talk was over, I, I, I will often ask Tammy, well, how did that go? Was that clear? Was it miserable? Did it suck? What, what? And she'll, she, she's very kind to give me her honest opinion. And she said, oh, no, it was clear enough. Everyone thinks you were in jail. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Well, uh, to try to correct that, <laughs> I was ministering at the jail. I was not incarcerated in the jail. Um, but here in, in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 12, Jesus is, this is part of his Galilean ministry. He's in one of the cities. There comes a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face. He begged him, 
Notice how he, notice how he uh, addresses Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this is a statement of faith, isn't it? I don't have any question. Uh, if you're desirous to, to make me clean, you can do it. You are Lord. And look what Jesus does. I can remember preaching this out of the jail. He stretched out his hand and he touched them. That's not something you did in that day. You did not touch lepers. Lepers were required to jump up and down and yell unclean so that if you saw one coming, you could cross the street and walk the other way. It was a very lonely existence being a leper. It's probably one of the first times that this person had been touched by another human being in quite some time. And um, Jesus uh, reaches out and touches him. He says, I will be clean. And immediately what happened? The leprosy left him. Now, my point here is in verse 14. He charged him to what? To tell no one, you see. And that's one of the points that Luke's pulling out of the box and putting on the floor here for you to hold on to. Uh, don't tell nobody. Uh, sometimes this is referred to, has anyone ever heard of the messianic secret? Have you heard that language before? If you ever do, you'll know what's being talked about. Where Jesus is, is charging people not to say anything. Shh, don't tell nobody. Don't tell no one. Now, if we look to uh, chapter 8, Chapter 8. <clears throat> Here we have uh, Jesus' healing of a woman and uh, Jairus' daughter. If you look at verse 40, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Luke chapter 8, verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, if you skip down to verse 49, while Jesus is still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, you know, no need to trouble the teacher. Your daughter is gone. Verse 50, Jesus hears this and he answers, don't, don't be afraid. Only believe and she'll be well. And in verse 51, <clears throat> when he came to the house, Jesus allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Don't, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise and her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But Jesus also gives another directive here, doesn't he? At the end of verse 56, he charged them to what? To tell no one. Don't tell anyone. Now, the next passage, uh, chapter nine. Chapter nine. Verse uh, 21, if we back up for context here, Jesus is uh, asking some questions and uh, he asks of his disciples who were with him, 
who do the crowds say that I am? Of course, Jesus is not asking this for his own benefit. Uh, he's, this is a teaching device here. Who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 19, they answered John the Baptist, Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter gives his famous confession. He says, you, you are the Christ of God. Now, look at verse 21. What does Jesus say? He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to who? To no one. And this had to be confusing to the disciples, you know, because, I mean, this is not very good marketing, is it? I mean, if you really want to get this thing going on here, I mean, we need to start telling people about this. I mean, if you want to get the big crowds and you want to get all this stuff going on, you need to start telling people about this. And, um, but it, it wasn't time. It wasn't time. Jesus had a number of reasons for not doing so. One is he didn't want people to gather uh, just to see uh, the, the healings. Uh, he's, he didn't want to give people the impression that he's just simply a faith healer. Two, it made it difficult for Jesus to get around as, as these healings, which are sprinkled through the gospel. If you read through the gospels, you'll find these, this messianic secret here and there. And do people always obey Jesus when he says, don't tell no one? Uh, no, they go and tell. And as they tell, people do what? They flock out to see for themselves. And it really caused a lot of hardship for Christ. He had to live out in the wilderness, couldn't walk uh, freely through uh, uh, through the towns. So it, it made it difficult for him. And I'm sure there are many other reasons that Jesus had for that. But the point that I want to make here, and I think this is one of the overarching points, if you're ever wondering what the triumphal entry is about, and especially what this donkey is all about, is that the messianic secret is over. Jesus is now going public with who he is. Now, how does the donkey fit into this? Well, it would have been well known, well known. The prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 9 verses 9 and 10, that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, how well do the disciples understand this? Uh, you know, they, they understood it to a point, uh, of course. There are many things they do not understand. Uh, John's gospel, uh, his account of this tells us that they didn't really understand this until after he was glorified. But they certainly understand it to the point that they, uh, they throw their, their cloaks on it. If you go back to Luke 19, and you look at verse 36, uh, verse 35. They throw their cloaks on the colt. Jesus sits on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying what? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's the first point that I want to make this morning is Christ's identification. Here we, he, he is going public with who he is. It's been, he has asked everybody and charged everybody to keep it a secret. 
But now Christ is actually coming forward uh, as uh, uh, publicly, publicly allowing himself publicly to be displayed as the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. The second point that I want to make is his reception. How is Jesus received? Well, here we'll see that there are two groups. There are two groups here. Verse uh, 37. If you look uh, as Jesus is drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen. So we see there's a multitude of his disciples. There's one group. But there's another group. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, what? Rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. We we have two different responses here, don't we? Two different responses. And again, Luke is connecting some things here. If we back up just a little bit, back up to uh, chapter 17. Let's see here. If you look at verse 20, there Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God will come. And Jesus answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Uh, It's kind of interesting that these are the religious leaders of the day, and they're asking Jesus, who is king of the kingdom, when the kingdom of God will come. Uh, and, and the whole point is, they can't see. They, they're, they're blind. They, they can't see. Uh, these are the folks that should be, these are the folks that are leading uh, the church, if you will. Uh, these are the, the religious leaders, and they, they can't see. And I think this helps us to take in some of the stories that come next. If you go to chapter 18 and you look at, at verse 9, um, the famous uh, story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You know the story. Two men go into the temple to pray, right? And uh, the Pharisee, he's standing by himself. He prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, 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 no. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector stands far off you know, he stands far off. He, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast. And what is his prayer? His prayer is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see two groups. Two people representative of two groups. One blinded in self-righteousness. But the other one, the other one can see at least to a point. Does the other person understand that the, the, the coming crucifixion and the coming resurrection and the coming ascension, does he understand all that right now? No. 
But what he does understand is that he needs mercy. And what he does understand is that this mercy is available in Christ. He can see that. The other person can, right? If we continue along, if you look at verse 18, chapter 18, verse 18, here comes a a rich ruler. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this this verse is this verse. I remember this verse confusing me for a long time. Maybe it has confused some of you. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Has anybody ever been puzzled by that statement? Why would you call me good? Wait a second. You're (laughs) Jesus. You're without sin. You're perfect. Why wouldn't he call you good? What is Jesus doing? He says, no one is good except God alone. Kind of sounds like Romans 3, doesn't it? There's no one who does good. No, not one. All together, all fallen short of the glory of God. You know, we studied all those passages. That's what Jesus has kind of given him, isn't it? He's given him Romans 3, but he hasn't written Romans 3 yet. Why do you call me good? Why would Jesus respond this way? Because the man refers to him as a good teacher. He refers to him as another man. He's looking at him as if he's another man like himself. And what Jesus wants to show him is that, listen, men aren't good. Why are you calling me good? Men aren't good. There's no one who does good. Only God is good. Well, there's a question on the floor. What is the question? What must I do to to inherit eternal life? What's Jesus say? You know the commandments. Now he's given him the law. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Okay, he's given him the law. We're studying the Ten Commandments on Wednesday nights. And uh, as we study the Ten Commandments, they, they pierce us, don't they? Um, we're just really getting started. But as we study the Ten Commandments, we're going to see over and over again that we do not keep these commandments very well. Uh, they're meant to lead us to Jesus in this respect. Uh, but after we've, after we've come to Jesus, after we... Uh, I, I, uh, as we find mercy in Christ and forgiveness in Christ, well, then they, they become uh, guide marks, uh, g- the guides in how to lead us uh, into righteousness and holiness, do they not? Uh, so Jesus is giving him the law. Okay, well, the guys, how's the guy respond to that? You know, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. What does he say? Well, all these I've kept from my youth. Oh, really? Oh, okay, well, then there's just this one little thing. Sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Rot-row. Rot-row. Sell all my stuff. I like my stuff. Does anybody want to sell all their stuff? We like our stuff. A lot. And he goes away sad. Because he can't see. We could juxtapose this against another one of my favorite parables where the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls and upon finding one, he sells all that he has so that he can go and buy the pearl. And there the pearl was right in front of him. Jesus is right in front of him. And Jesus says, listen, sell all that stuff. Sell all that rubbish and come follow me. We're about to make a video that's along those lines a little bit, you know. Why settle for the world when we can have the creator? 
Oh, but he's sad because he believes the world is uh, believes the world is better. So he's sad. See, he can't see. He can't see. And now I think it makes perfect sense why Luke would put verses 35 and onward in here. Um, Now we're going to heal a blind guy. Can't you see why that's here now? I mean, it makes perfect sense. As Jesus draws near to Jericho, a blind man is sitting by the roadside begging. He hears the crowd. He inquires, what's, what's going on? They said, Jesus is coming. And he cried out, and look at this statement, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's blind, but he can see. He's blind, but he can see. And they tell him to shut up, and he will have none of it. He will have none of it. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And what does he do in response to recovering his sight? Follows Jesus. Follows him. Glorifying God. And then we have another story, the story of Zacchaeus. He enters Jericho. As he's passing through, there's a man who's vertically challenged, right? He's a short guy. Um, We're told that he is of small stature. Uh, He wants to see Jesus, uh, but he's too short. He can't see over the crowds. So he gets up in a tree, a sycamore tree, we're told, as Jesus is passing by. Jesus comes by. Uh, to comes by and he looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, hurry down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, uh, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restored fourfold. Well, juxtapose this with the rich ruler. He didn't want to give his stuff away. Zacchaeus isn't even asked to give his stuff away. Zacchaeus says, oh, listen, half, half the stuff, let's, let's give it to the poor. I'm so happy. I'm so happy to have you, Jesus. I'm so happy to have you see. He can see. He's got these eyes that he can see with. Eyes of his heart that he can see with. What's Jesus say to him in verse 9? Today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. And that brings us to the passage that we come to this morning. You see, Luke is toggling back and forth, isn't he? Between blindness and being able to see in a spiritual way. And when we come to verse 37, we have this multitude of Jesus' disciples who begin to rejoice. And we have Jerusalem, if you will, who won't have any of it. They won't have any of it. So Jesus is being, his reception is mixed. And um, the last point that I want to make is found in verses 41 through 44. Jesus, as he drew near and saw the city, 
What does he do? Does he get angry? Does he get mad? Realizing that he's going to be rejected there. We're told no. He, he weeps over it. He weeps over it. And he says in verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are what? Hidden from your eyes. See what Luke's putting together? If you turn back to Luke 13, to what we read this morning, in our, uh, our New Testament reading, Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you would not. You would not. On the way in this morning, Tammy, has anybody listened to the Bible study hour this morning? The old recordings of James Montgomery Boyce. Has anybody ever heard him? That's my best James Montgomery voice. voice. James Montgomery Boyce. Um, he was preaching on, on Luke 13, verses 31 and onward. And um, he marvelously developed this, uh, this metaphor that Jesus uses, how I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. This idea of a hen gathering her chicks, if you will, under her wings. Uh, he told a story. He said the best story that he knew of that, that really represented this passage was a story that took place in California back in the days when people still traveled by train and the trains were coal pile, uh, powered. And there was, has anyone ever heard the story? There was, a, there was a farmer that was always afraid as these trains, as they went by, sometimes they would admit sparks. And one of his greatest fear is that one of those sparks would ignite his field and ruin his entire, his entire farm. And one day a train went past and uh, he was watching very carefully and uh, uh, sure enough, shortly after the train went past, he saw some smoke in his field. And uh, he ran to the, towards the fire only to discover that the fire at this point had become a raging wall. And he, it was all that he could do to try to retreat from the fire. And uh, in a last-minute ditch effort, he started his own fire in order to try to make a fire break if you will, and he started his own fire so that that would help put out uh, this raging wildfire that had taken place. And um, by God's good grace, it did work. He lost a large portion of his, of his farm, but he didn't lose the whole thing. And as he was inspecting the damage, he noticed that there was a hen that was all burned up and obviously got caught up in the flames and was unable to get away. And uh, just out of frustration, he happened to nudge the head, the hen with his shoe. And as he nudged the hen with his shoe, out from underneath it crawled five little chicks. 
That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have loved to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would have it not. Can you see this morning? Can you see? If you can, if if you ever asked yourself why, I mean, if you ever said, "Why me? Why, why can I see?" Because you know, I mean, tomorrow morning when we're at work, um, not everybody can see. I'm not being judgmental or anything. I mean, you guys go to work too, right? Not everyone can see, can they? Why? Are we more righteous than everyone else? I hope no one's thinking that because if you're thinking that, then you need to go back and read about the Pharisee and the tax collector because our prayers are going to sound like the Pharisee's prayers. Lord, I thank you. You made me a person who can see, not like these other people. Why can we see? It's only by his grace. As he drew us under his wings and he bore that fire. That's why we can see. What is Luke up to? Well, he's showing us. Jesus goes public with his identity, doesn't he? He goes public with his identity. He shows us the receptivity of this public announcement. It's a mixed crowd, isn't it? There are some who who praise him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do they understand everything? No, they'll soon scatter when Jesus is crucified. But quite frankly, do we understand everything? I mean, we hopefully understand a little more today than we did when we were first called to Jesus. But when you're first called to Jesus, do you understand everything? We hardly understand anything. You see, if we're trusting in Jesus this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, don't worry so much about if you don't understand everything. Sometimes some of you will come to me and you'll say, man, I don't see all this stuff that you see in in the text. And listen, we're all gifted differently. God gives us all gifts that are different. The important part is, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him to protect you? Are you trusting him to save you? Do you believe that your happiness is found in him and nowhere else? And if you believe that, you believe enough. I'm not telling you to stop there and to rest there. But what I'm saying is be of good cheer because I don't think our blind beggar knew much more than that. The last thing we see is Christ's compassion. Jesus looked at the lost condition of Jerusalem and he wept. Now, his compassion does not, um, it does not in any way deny his coming judgment. Um, Let's be sure before we close that we understand that, that Christ's compassion does not in any way deny his judgment. 
For he says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will be, will set up a barrier, a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the day or time of your visitation. His compassion does not deny his judgment. So let's not prevail upon his compassion. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. Father, some of us have seen many, many times. But we come to it this morning, Father, hopefully in a way that's fresh to everyone. And Father, we see that, Lord, uh, here you, you allow yourself and you even promote the the public identity uh, of Christ as the Messiah, son of David, the king who comes riding on a donkey, the col- a colt, the foal of a donkey, as Zechariah 9, 9 had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And we see that there's, there's a mixed reception. Uh, there are those who are in love with their things. There are those who are, are in love with many other things. And then there are your disciples. And Father, we see your compassion. We see your compassion. That you had compassion. And over the lost condition, that you actually wept. Father, may these things be pressed upon our hearts, Father. May your compassion lead us to come to you afresh this morning maybe even lead us to come to you for the first time this morning. Father, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.